0: You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk.
1: Well, over the last few weeks, uh, David has laid the groundwork for us in our Bible Fresh, Big Bible Overview, considering Genesis and Exodus. But this evening, the pace steps up as we tackle the remaining three books in what is known as the Pentateuch Those opening five, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, as recorded by Moses, form a collection. They are one book, but in five volumes, that stretch from the creation of the world to the creation of God's people. And this evening, our task is to consider Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But that is certainly not how the Jews would have originally referred to them. Those titles that we're so used to at the start of our Bibles are fairly recent editions. We regard these books by their Greek rather than their original Hebrew names. You know, Genesis means beginnings, Exodus, the exit from Egypt, Leviticus, everything about the Levites, the priests, Numbers, all about arithmetic, Deuteronomy, the second law. But the Jews name these books by their opening lines. It's a good way of probably naming books, isn't it? Using the opening lines in the Hebrew, and they're far more helpful and give us far more content and context to the message behind them. So so bear with me for a few moments as I introduce these to you, as they would have originally been understood. Genesis, the opening word is barashith, which means in the beginning. And as Julie Andrews reminded us in The Sound of Music all those years ago, let's start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. And she's absolutely right. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God. Genesis introduces to the start of everything, everything that is apart from God, who made everything. Exodus, whilst describing Israel's escape from Egypt, is known as wah shamoth That means these are the names of. You see, Moses does what every child in school is told not to do. Moses begins his book of Exodus with a conjunction. And primary school teachers are out there having convulsions at the very thought of it. Moses starts his book with the word and, proving that this must be an ongoing story, one that picks up from the story that's just gone before in the book of Genesis and Exodus. Rather than opening up a whole new story, the two are connected. Genesis is just the beginning of the story of God's family of faith in the world. How easy it is for all of us, never mind kings or pharaohs or slaves in Egypt, never mind 21st century people in the midst of a pandemic, to forget God's saving grace in the past and see our current lives as detached from God's saving grace throughout history. Our Christian lives are part of that great and is there ever a more beautiful word in all of the Bible and the word and we are part of this continuous story. Even though the Bible has finished, the Bible has concluded, we are drawn into this story. Our hands form part of the kingdom of God. I mean, who would have thought that one word at the start of an Old Testament book could have so much to say to any of us tonight? But Genesis connects with Leviticus and Leviticus connects with Numbers and Numbers with Deuteronomy and Deuteronomy with the rest of the Old Testament and into the New Testament with this whole series of ands. The ands weave us and connect us by faith to the same God as Adam and Joseph and Abraham and Moses and Joshua and David the creator and great covenant-keeping God is our God because of these acts. Then Leviticus begins with, which sounds a little bit like Geordi's, like Ant and Dec saying hello, doesn't it? But is in fact the Hebrew for, and he called. That is, God called Moses. And again, I inform informative, that God is still speaking to his people. Then, numbers, although the accountants at home are probably licking their chops about a book in the Bible that's known as Arithmoi, Arithmetic. I am so sorry to disappoint you, but the opening line isn't about statistics, but once again continues the story of Israel with the Hebrew words, meaning, and he spoke in the wilderness. Hey, how much mileage is there in that for us tonight? God speaks in the wilderness, in the desert times of life. I even picked that up from what Davy and Daniel just shared with us a few moments ago, the desire that in the lives of their pupils or fellow pupils that God continues to speak and that these would not just be wilderness times or wandering times, but times when God would speak and continue the ands' stories. Whilst Deuteronomy launches us into the next chapter of the story of the Israelites with these words in the opening line, chapter 1, verse 1, Ele These are the words of. What's so significant about all of this you might ask? Well, namely this. The story of the world begins in Genesis 1, and the story of God's people, the church, begins in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, when God promises that he will lead Abraham to a new land, make his family a great nation, and become a global blessing. And with each new volume within this Pentateuch, we get a clearer view of what God is doing in his world. The Israelites at this moment we join in them tonight are edging closer to the land of their own. Their numbers are rising. That's why they took those census to see how many people were there. But the question is, as it is of us tonight, were they being a blessing? And so the story continues, having escaped from Egypt by God's mighty power. They're gathered around Mount Sinai. They're entering into the covenant with God as they become his worshiping people, agreeing to obey God's law. And that's where we take up the story in the book of Leviticus tonight. Please turn with me to the book of Leviticus, the third book of the Bible, if you haven't already done so. It's interesting. Leviticus was the very first book of the Old Testament That Jewish children were taught. But I would imagine it's probably one of the last books of the Bible that any of us teach our children. But it's a wonderful book because in it we find a holy God who makes a way for sinful people. And that would be my subheading for the book of Leviticus God makes a way. Leviticus summarizes a whole year in the life of Israel as they invest in the setting up of the tabernacle, which takes the guts of 20 chapters at the end of Exodus. But we find that the tabernacle was absolutely central to the lives of the Israelites. The place where God's presence settled amongst his people. He was their great king residing in his palace, the tabernacle amongst them. Leviticus contains precise details as to how the great saving king Yahweh was to be worshipped and approached. And it was to be on his terms and at his direction. The word that dominates Leviticus that appears more than any other word in the whole of this book is the word holy. It appears 90 times in the book of Leviticus. And usually it refers to God's nature, the very essence of his being. Holiness is one of those things that seems hard to grasp for us, but it's actually a very simple word that means altogether different. Something that's set apart from the rest. It denotes a person who's in a league of their own, and how it is true of God and His eternal being. There is none like Him. For a start, He is, He was, and He will always be. And that was the name by which he revealed himself, the covenant name that he gave to Moses back in Exodus 3, the I am, always being, never aging, eternal one, everything we're not. But he is also holy in the sense that he's perfect. God has no dark corners. And so the whole book of Leviticus is, if you like, a detailed picture of vivid images of what it takes For sinful, finite humanity to relate to a sinless, eternal God. For they have nothing in common. From Genesis chapter 3, humanity has been exiled from God and left asking the question, Is there no way back? How can we be friends with God again? How can I, in my sin, return to any kind of relationship with the God who has pushed me away because of my sin? But Leviticus gives us an answer. Grab your Bibles and even skim through those opening few chapters. Just even flick with your fingers and let your eyes fall upon the endless use of words like offering, sacrifice, time after time after time. And even the detailed instructions are informative for us. Look, for example, at Leviticus chapter 1 verse 3, the opening few verses of that book, where the worshiper must bring a specific animal without defect Then Leviticus 1 verse 4, lay your hand on the head of the offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. Here we have a picture story played out for us of how sin is paid for. This animal is the very best of the flock. It's it's spotless, it's pure, it's perfect. And the bringing of such an animal would be very costly to the worshiper. But he or she must give it over And as they do so, lay hands on this animal, transferring their guilt and their sin for whatever they've done, and then slaughter the animal. So as it were, as your hand was resting on the head of that animal, and as that animal's throat is slit, and as as the blood begins to drip, and the very life of that animal begins to sag, and you feel it just fall, it dies... It all becomes very personal, doesn't it? You have caused that animal to die because you've transferred your guilt and your sin to it. And you you see what your sin does. The blood of sinful rebellion against God is literally in your hands and causes the death of another. Which all leads to the climax of the great day of atonement Sacrifice, blood, and forgiveness witnessed in the bulls and goats of Leviticus 17. And you know, as any of us read these chapters in Leviticus, you can't help feeling that the priests became more like skilled butchers, familiar with rivers of blood that must have flowed from the tabernacle every day. I can just imagine Mr. Priest heading home from his day on the shift. One of the Levites taking her to and he heads home and his wife meets them at the door of the tent and goes, oh, because of the blood spattered clothes. He stained. Oh, you just smell of sin. The whole system screams to us is there no other way? Is there no sacrifice to end these endless sacrifices? Is there nothing that will stem this tidal wave of blood day after day? But how can unholy Jacob from the tribe of Naphtali or sinful Sarah from the tribe of Judah be forgiven? Never mind 21st sin splattered David Leach. Sin is much more complex than we imagine. Let me say something really clear tonight that maybe some of us have never really thought of, sin is not just doing bad stuff. Sin is not just doing bad stuff. It's how you compare your life to others, and then you become deadly mistaken. Because sin is is what is interwoven in our inner beings. The sacrifice in Leviticus highlight that we need a solution that would include a remedy for these. We're separated from God. All our misplaced wants and desires, we worship other things. And our utter unacceptability with God for sinners are not God's type. We're not in the same league. Death, purity. Hell, heaven. There's nothing that connects us. All of these sacrifices in Leviticus cry out for a perfect sacrifice. One lamb instead of many. Someone who can bring us back into fellowship, relationship with God again. The gap is too big. And the big takeaway truth from Leviticus is is that we cannot save ourselves. We cannot make ourselves likeable or lovable before God again. We can't come up with our own method of salvation. But God has made a way. That's where Leviticus takes us. And the first half of the book, 15 chapters, deal with how we approach God and where we find forgiveness. And the latter chapters emphasize the call on God's people, once we have been forgiven, to be holy. Let me give you two examples. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2. Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus 20, verses 7 and 8. Consecrate yourselves and be holy, because I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and follow them. I am the Lord who makes you holy. God's people are called to be noticeably different from the nations of the world, the tribes around about them, the neighbors who look on. The, the, the Israelites are to be different in how they interact with each other socially, and how they use their money, and how they care for the poor, and how they relate to each other sexually, and how they deal with each other corporately. All our interactions are to be graciously God shaped by the salvation that they have received. Those who worship a holy God, well, they're to be a holy people. And the laws of God are given in order that his people are set apart to make them distinctive. Remembering these were laws not given by an angry taskmaster, but by a loving savior. These were laws given by the God who had already saved them from Egypt. God is basically saying, this is what my people are to look like. So when we read what's required in the Old Testament or the New Testament of God's saved people, we've got to sit up and take heed. One commentator, Sidlow Baxter, put it like this. The basis of a restored relationship with God is sacrifice. The walk of fellowship with God is separation. So it leads us all again to the question tonight how do our lives as God-saved, redeemed, grace-given people look different from those around us today? Are we set apart for God? Or to put it another way, having been restored in our relationship with God through the perfect sacrifice of that Lamb that came, His Son, how does that change us? A useful exercise might be to read Romans 12, 1 and 2 later on tonight. In view of his mercy, the sacrifice of Jesus, are we transformed in our minds? Leviticus, God makes a way. But it leads us directly onto the book of Numbers, which, as I said earlier, is not a statistical analysis of Israel, although Moses does take two censuses of the people in the book, but it's rather a heartbreaking history of God's people in the wilderness. God's people in the wilderness. 36-year-old Aditya Singh was arrested last Saturday after airline staff in O'Hare International Airport, Chicago, asked him to produce identification. Police say that Mr. Singh arrived on a flight from Los Angeles to O'Hare International on the 19th of October, but he reportedly was so scared to go home because of COVID. He allegedly lived within a secure part of O'Hare International Airport from the 19th of October 2020 to the 16th of January 2021. And he wasn't detected. But here was a man living in an airport for three months, yet he was going nowhere. Could anything be more depressing than being stuck in an airport for three whole months? He was scared and he was stuck. And for me, that summarizes the story of the book of Numbers. So near, and yet so far. Scared and stuck. That describes, and wait for it, the 38-year wait for God's people to enter the promised land. A journey which took them to the very border of their new home within just a couple of weeks, but resulted in just under four decades of wilderness wandering. This is the Old Testament church going nowhere fast. Caught between two worlds, past and present, slavery and freedom. Numbers chapters 1-14 to deals with the first leg of that journey from Sinai and tells about Israel's fateful lack of faith when they reached the border of Canaan. Numbers 15 to 19 reflect the faithless fiddling about and the fatal decisions made by the people which resulted in them being saved, yes, but stuck. Whilst numbers 20 to 36 relate the successful approach via the back door into Canaan across the Transjordan. The book's subject matter links it closely with the partial fulfillment of those promises to Abraham in Genesis 12, because they were an ever-growing people. Read in the early chapters of Numbers that the fighting men numbered 600,000 people. At least double that, and add in children as well, and you're talking well over a million people. So this was a family that had grown from one man, Abraham. God was fulfilling his promises. And there was the land just ahead of them, the land that they'd been promised. But then the report comes back from 12 spies who were sent on a mission to the land of Canaan. And they expressed a light that this truly is a land flowing with milk and honey. Have a look with me at Numbers chapter 13, verses 27 and 28. Numbers 13, 27 and 28. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which he sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. Here's the problem for them. The people are like giants. The obstacles are too great. The task is too much to handle. And despite the positive report from two out of the 12 spies, Caleb and Joshua, who say, we can certainly do this, do you see how the Israelites react? Turn over to the next chapter, chapter 14, and we're going to read the first 12 verses together. Numbers 14, verses 1 to 12. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among them also, had explored the land They tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, and I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. Israel displays not only ingratitude, but unbelief. Oh, and God is about to judge them all, and Moses intervenes. Only Joshua and Caleb will enter the promised land, but this generation that had escaped from Egypt by God's mighty hand weren't so sure about moving on and wanted to go back. God allows them to do neither, and they die in the wilderness. It's a head scratcher, isn't it? What were these people thinking? But then we realize this isn't a unique Old Testament problem. It's the exact same issue that Paul faced when he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 12. I'm keeping you on your toes tonight, so turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and let's read the first 12 verses and see what they say. 1 Corinthians 10. Paul writes... For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized in the Moses in the cloud and in the sea. In other words, they all experienced the amazing Exodus that God provided. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. From they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful, you don't fall. Those are challenging words. And it leads us to ask again, where have we been in our Christian lives and where should we be? The joys and commitment to Christ five years ago or 20 years ago don't matter at all now. Where are you in your journey with Jesus tonight? Like the Israelites, are we those who are saved by God, but we're stuck? Where are we? Have we given much thought to our faith and following and obedience? Do you know what distinguishes someone who's going nowhere in their faith? It's been very clear in both these passages tonight. The grumblers, the complainers. If you have a grumbling, discontent, complaining heart, friends, be warned. That is a sign you've got stuck and have gone nowhere in your faith. Because God always deals with those who gurn about their lot and constantly carp. Like the 10 out of the 12 men who went in to spy in the promised land. Hey, there's the key to it all. It was God's promised land. But the size of the task loomed larger in their thinking than the promises of God. Is that us tonight? Is that you tonight? Do the trials of this world seem greater than God's promises to you? Because God will not force our hands. He will give us what we want. If we're grumbling and think, oh, I don't know about this, well, what do we do? He'll leave us and we'll die in the wilderness of our lives, having gone nowhere, having blessed no one. Will we shrink back in mistrust and fear? Or will we go into this week and the next holding tight not just to the promises of God, but to the God of those promises? Yet despite all the sadness that stopped Israel in her tracks, we learn so much of God in this book, don't we? With the desert in every direction, these people had nothing but God. If only they had trusted in him, they were to find that God was always enough. There are many dark clouds that sweep over the book of Numbers, but behind them all is the sun of God's goodness that shines bright. Here's another piece of homework for you. There's a fascinating story near the end of the book. I love it. It's the story of King Balak, a neighboring king who was petrified of Israel coming near. It's in chapter 24. And he's terrified by the size of Israel's army. And he hires an evil prophet, Balaam, to curse Israel. But through a talking donkey, yes, a talking donkey, and a series of events, God uses Balaam to bless Israel rather than curse Israel. No matter how hard Balaam tries to curse Israel, he has to bless them. God uses his words and chains them and twists them. I am so deeply reassured by this that God can still use silly asses to talk to and bless his people. And you've got one in front of you tonight. But behind it all, even those who would seek to do the church and God's people harm, God always uses for his good. For all things work together for good to those that love God. God is always working in this world, and it is always for the good of his church, but we so often fail to see it. And nowhere is that more clearly heard in the beautiful words that we so often sing in both our churches. In Numbers chapter 6, the blessing from God through his, through his high priest. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious unto you and give you peace. As one older commentator, Milgram, puts it, even under extreme provocation, Yahweh keeps his covenant with Israel and he guides them through the wilderness and provides for their needs and he keeps blessing and keeping and shining and smiling. Folks, what a great God we have. And no matter how much we grumble and despair and are distracted and forget and get stuck, he wants to bless and keep and smile and shine. So near and yet so far. I read this romantic post on Friday. I dream of the day when I will walk down the aisle and hear those magical words. This is your pilot speaking. And maybe some of us are dreaming about grabbing a holiday abroad as soon as we can to escape the present. We want to do all these things, to move on, to get away. But here's the question God asks of us. Don't waste away your life now. Where are you traveling in your faith at this moment? How has your obedience to Him been in this past year? Are we God's redeemed people? Are we in a rut? Are we saved by God's grace but stuck in our own grumblings? so near and yet so far we're going to pause the preaching at this moment and we're going to revert to praise as the group come up and lead us in those lovely words of living waters and let these words speak to you at home and maybe even make them a prayer that even those of us who've been stuck in that rut might drink from these living waters again before we come back to the last section on Deuteronomy we're nearly there. We're in Deuteronomy and we're going to fly through this in the next few minutes. Leviticus was completed in a year, Numbers in 38 years, whereas Deuteronomy is a series of sermons written over 40 days. And maybe some of you are thinking, I know how they feel at this moment in time. But Moses' sermons take the warnings of the past and apply these to the next generation who are about to enter the land. The Hebrews call this book the book of words. The wasted years of the wanderings and numbers are set in stark contrast with a forceful reminder. Have a look at Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 2. Just a throwaway comment in the brackets. It takes 11 days to go from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea by the Mount Seir road. An 11-day journey that took 40 years. Talk about getting stuck. But Moses brings them back to the promises of God and the privilege of being God's people. For example, Deuteronomy references the land 100 times, given by God as a gift 75 times, this day, in other words, the need for present choices by this generation 70 times, and possess a call to respond, be obedient, and getting on to claim the promises of God 70 times. Even let those words sink in. Land given, this day possess. God's gifts are there for the taking. Isn't he gracious? Whilst many had longed and given up and grumbled about him with their words, he was faithful. But perhaps the key passage in all of Deuteronomy is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 9. And I just want to read those verses with us as we come to the end. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be in your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you're walking along the road. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. These words are known as the Shema, which means a hearing that results in doing. It's not just a listening, but it's a responding. The God who rescues his people from sin and slavery is the same God who gives them a new home and instills us a new hope. He is God alone. That's what it means whenever it says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It means he is God alone. That's the best translation of Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. The Lord is one. The Lord comes first. What was it Jesus said the greatest commandment was? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love others. That's really straightforward, isn't it? Love God and love others. I hope your conscience answered before you said anything. Do I love God with everything? From my heart, from the depths of my soul, with all my strength. Heart, soul, strength. Do I love my neighbor that way? The words from God aren't to be discussed, but to be obeyed. And the law that he gives us for living. And it's to percolate into every area of life. In that section I read, verses 5 and 6, it's to touch our hearts. It's in verse 7, to enter our homes. Verse 7 again, it's to be in the daily habits of our lives. It's to be as close to us as our hands physically. And it's to be displayed for our neighbors to see. But for me, this passage of Deuteronomy, the message of our lives for our lives, It's really accentuated by the next few verses, verses 10 to 12. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord. He brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery when we are redeemed by his grace we are receivers of his gifts for the Israelites it was a large family a beautiful land and huge blessing for us we become part of a large family we call it the church worldwide that stretches across history and eternity and this globe, that connects us with brothers and sisters in Africa and Asia and South America. It's huge and growing still. We are connected with God as our Father, fellow Christians as brothers and sisters. We find our place in Christ where we have an everlasting inheritance. Assured by the indwelling of the Spirit. We belong to a kingdom. We receive a new house that we have contributed nothing to. That Jesus says in John 14, He's gone to prepare for us. And so it's incumbent upon us, verse 12, to be careful, be careful, not to forget the Lord who brought us out of slavery. You know, Deuteronomy, like Numbers, Leviticus, Exodus, and Genesis genesis before it only really has one theme. In fact, this world only really has one theme. It's the theme that introduces this whole book that we call the Pentateuch and creates this whole world. Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning, God. Folks, that's it. The principle, the answer, the solution, the thread running through all these books, it's it's a prescription, the medication for every problem in life in the beginning. Start with God. God first. In Exodus, we're told that at the start of the commandments, I am the Lord your God He brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Start with God. Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. In the beginning, God. It's so terribly simple. And the rest of the Old Testament, the New Testament centers around this question of how will we live with God as our king? Let me leave you with a visual illustration and hopefully the boys and girls of are watching still at home tonight, that God is holy and he made a choice. Here we are. I have two forks, okay? One is larger, one is smaller. And I have a choice which one I want to take. And you know what? I I choose the smaller one. I choose the lesser one, the the not-so-impressive one. And I take it, and I have chosen it, And it's a little bit like what God does with Israel. They were the lesser-known people. They weren't a famous people, but he chooses them. And he takes them to himself and says, they're going to be mine. This is mine. They both look the same, but he chooses one. And he takes that people and he makes them his own. He says, this is mine. And then he doesn't just take it his own, but then he does something with them because you know what? He's a holy God, and they're a sinful people. So what he does, he, he, he washes them clean. And he makes them holy. He makes them his very own. So that over time, as he continues to lovingly cleanse and hold, not letting anyone take it from him, he washes it and cleans it, and he rubs and he cleans, and he keeps it going until, you know what? They begin to look just. Like him his people not because they were more impressive but because he lovingly chose them and cleans them and keeps them and smiles upon them be holy for I am holy let me leave the last word to a Christian counselor called Ed Welsh He puts it so beautifully like this. Holy things are uniquely associated with God and set apart from the rest of creation. Holy things are near to him. They're honorable, not because of their intrinsic worth and purity, but rather they are made honorable because the Lord chooses them and sets them apart and brings them to himself in his hands, his people. And as they prepare to enter the promised land with all the issues of idolatry and immorality in the tribes around about them that we'll think about next week as they go into that land and have to conquer it, they do so with the power of a God who holds them. And as I have redeemed you, Do not fear. I will not let you go. You're his people, his treasure possession, and all of life. May he be in the first place, in the beginning. God.